Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers of African American life and culture discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today I'm happy to speak with Vershawn Ashanti Young, professor in the English department at the University of Kentucky and editor of From Bourgeois to Bougie. Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers of African American life and culture discuss their new books. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today I'm happy to speak with Vershawn Ashanti Young, professor in the English department at the University of Kentucky and editor of From Bourgeois to Bougie, Black Middle Class Performances, published in 2011 by Wayne State University Press. If you want to learn more about the historical representations of class amongst Black communities and how they play out in the contemporary society, if you're interested in the intertwined relationship between behavior and class presentations, if you want to know more about performance, both in the fine arts as well as within the contours of everyday life, Vershawn A. Young's edited collection shares lessons that you just don't want to miss. In our conversation, the professor discusses varied types of performance in terms of responsibility, womanhood, media, and sexuality, all within the Black middle class. I enjoyed our conversation. I know you will, too. Listen in. Okay. Good afternoon, Vershawn. How are you? I'm very fine, Sherry. Good afternoon to you. I'm so happy you're able to join us today uh, to talk about your book, From Bourgeois to Bougie, Black Middle Class Performances. Um, Before we jump into our discussion, I just want to share with the listeners a little bit about you. Um, Why don't you say a few words about yourself? Like maybe, you know, where you were born, raised, etc. Well, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. And um, I spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, in Chicago right up until the time I graduated from high school. And then I went to uh, undergraduate school at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. Mm-hmm. Um, I graduated with a degree in English and um, speech theater, and I became a high school English and drama teacher. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, went back to Chicago, got two master's degrees, one in performance studies, Mm -hmm. another one in educational administration. I worked as an elementary principal. (laughs) Uh, Wow. (laughs) And then um, went to graduate school, got a Ph.D. in English and African-American studies from the University of Illinois at Chicago. And my first academic job was actually at the University of Iowa, Mm -hmm. where um, I was an assistant professor in African-American studies and rhetoric for seven years, Um, was tenured there and was recruited to the University of Kentucky, where I am now as an associate professor in um, English, American studies and gender and women's studies. Okay, wow. You know, we don't have, we have, we have something in common. I, too, um... First was a high school English teacher before I went back to graduate school. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, I think that we do it better. I really think that people who are trained to be teachers are really great professors. At least that's been my experience. Yes. All right. So performance then seems to be a, a, a common thread or link in everything that you've just outlined in terms of, um, you know, your interests, your academic interests, or your personal interests. So why don't you tell us a little bit how you became interested in performance? And then further, I guess, to um, bourgeois, bourgeois or bougie. Yes. Okay. Um, Well, when I was younger, uh, my family used to have these yearly uh, 
gatherings just for the family, but friends of the family would come to, and we would always perform. There was always a showcase. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would vary what we did. I mean, my sisters and I would sing, we would dance, we would do um, original poetry that we read, we would read uh, poems and excerpts from well-known uh, authors, etc. So I come from a from a culturally um, uh, diverse performance background, just you know, from my from my upbringing, mm-hmm. and in school, uh, I was always interested in the um, perform uh, oratory contests, mm-hmm. and I would always win mm-hmm. <laughs> these uh, vocal speaking contests, and so performance as a mode of interacting, as a way of representation and presenting um, material has always been a part of my um, family and academic life. Um, and I'm also trained as an actor um, and I work as a solo performance. So um, performance is, uh, artistic performance is, in, is important to me, obviously. But performance studies as a field, which I'm also trained in, right. is... Um, views performance very broadly so that performance is not only um, artistic performance, Mm -hmm. engaging in singing and dancing, etc., or performances that we see like rituals, etc., but it's also seeing everyday interaction through the lens of theatricality as a performance, seeing language um, as a performance. So everything becomes um, a uh, performative in that way, sure. and, and so um, I, as a as a person who has increased his class status from um, the underclass or lower working classes to the middle class, I see and engage in different performative modes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I could see ways of engaging with lower class or working class African Americans, mm-hmm. uh, as well as with middle class African Americans, and the ways in which others perceive working and middle-class African-Americans and the way in which they perceive me, but just based upon my racial identity right. and ways in which they expect me to perform. Sure. Sometimes I defy those performances right. and they cause, sometimes it causes tensions mm-hmm. and um, conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I exceed the expectations of those performances and sometimes those present challenges as well. Mm-hmm. And so that really is sort of like the personal impetus to this book from bourgeois to bougie mm-hmm. um, because uh, the middle class has gotten a lot of attention um, in these last several years. I mean, and I mean the middle class overall, not just the African-American middle class. Right. So we see that with the fall of the American economy, one of the big talking points in the uh, last presidential election of 2008 and in this current one for 2012 is the middle class. You know, how do we save America's middle class? And so everyone has become um, <laughs> middle class. Right. To, it's to the thing degree. to be. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but more particularly, we see that in this economy that African-Americans have been hit the most right. um, in terms of their um, uh, financial stability. Right. And so I was I'm I'm wondering, how does that um, economic as well as social and performative modes um, affect uh, the black uh, middle class? And that's really what uh, brought us um you know to this book those kinds of ideas although the idea was germinating well before the 2008 election but it's that kind of um you know that kind of social discourse that that brought me to do this book sure 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 okay good i you know as i as you're speaking i'm thinking you know we're in this academia we're in academia and i i wonder who were your mentors? Who who kind of helped to foster this kind of uh, the understanding of performance as a very uh, fruitful space for academic study? It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It does, in a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive to those of us who are outside of performance studies or theater. Mm-hmm. But I think it seems very intuitive to, to people who are in performance studies. Yeah. Um, I 
as I said, I have a master's degree in, in performance studies, and some of those people that I studied under um, are not well known in the field. But some of the people that I uh, that inspire me, such as E. Patrick Johnson okay. um, at Northwestern University, mm-hmm. um, and you know we're friends and colleagues, and he also wrote the foreword to this to this book. Yeah, um, and his work very much uh, uses the uh, intertwined lens of race. Mm-hmm. and performance in order to uh, discuss uh, gender, sure. particularly masculinity, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, class politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's that, that kind of um, lineage. I, would, I can cite some other people like uh, uh, Brian Keith Alexander mm-hmm. um, uh, at uh, Cal State, um, Jeffrey McCune at Maryland, who is also my colleague in performance studies, um, Soyini Madison, these are performance studies scholars in particular mm-hmm. who are very much interested in the kinds of topics that I am. So I read their work regularly. Um, they're interested in race and gender mm-hmm. and class as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. All right, so your title, I, I your book, I love. Um, and one of the things that brought me to it was the title, From Bourgeois to Bougie. Black Middle Class Performances, as well as the artwork. And we'll get to discussing the artwork um, shortly. Um, But it seems then that there are three particular terms, maybe some some might say all of the terms, need to be defined. Um, But I'm interested, and you've already begun to talk about performance and the broad ways in which you look at it or are interested in, in studying it. Can you just talk to me a little bit about uh, performance? Um, I want to read for you a quotation from E. Patrick Johnson's foreword. He said, um, I personally experienced material poverty, but also enjoyed a front row seat for some of the most intricate performances of middle class. And I know many of us who can relate. Um, in the quotation, he introduces performance as something we witness, but also something in which we all engage. Mm-hmm. And so I really want you to just uh, lay out for us um, some of the definitions of performance that one can find within the text. Okay. Um, I'm going to point to my introduction mm-hmm. in which I try to talk about the difference between um, a performance as a definition Yes. Uh, between blacks and, uh, and whites in particular, because mm-hmm. one of the things that our culture wants to do is we want to make the experiences of middle class whites and blacks exactly the same in order to say that we've achieved mm-hmm. uh, an egalitarian society where um, civil rights works for African-Americans. now. And so I'm trying to point out how performance allows us to see that that's not really the case right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the introduction on page 20, I appeal to one of the um, theorists in performance studies, Richard Schechner, mm-hmm. and how he defines performance. I'm just going to read a little bit. Sure. Um, it says how performing race differs for middle-class blacks than for say middle-class whites can be understood from what Schechner explains as the difference between performing that is playing a role in everyday life and someone being herself mm-hmm. to be myself is to behave in a relaxed and unguarded manner to perform myself mm-hmm. means to take on the appearance mm-hmm. voice and actions of the role or per- persona. Mm-hmm. And so I use examples of, of African-Americans having to being required to take on a role in everyday life when in fact they should be able to be relaxed and be themselves. Mm-hmm. So I use the example of Condoleezza Rice when she goes into the jewelry store and because of the color of her skin, the um, clerk shows her um, full jewelry and she huffs and puffs and basically says, I want to see the good stuff because she's, you know, middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, I use a literary example from Charles Chestnut's House Behind the Cedars mm-hmm. to show how um, Dr. William Miller, who's a middle class black doctor, has to try to assert his middle classness that mm-hmm. he's wearing a suit and speaks with uh, a, a kind of heightened dialect mm-hmm. and uh, is different from uh, the African-Americans who 
the text team seems to suggest should be in the Jim Crow car. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that based on his class, he, sh- he shouldn't be there. So my point here is saying that if we look at how these actors, and I'm using actors in a broad sense, these performers, these people have, have to perform their racial identity in everyday life just to get the rights and privileges that they should have based on being a human being. Correct. Anyway, yeah. we could see um, how African Americans still have a way to go to achieving equality. Sure. Full first class citizenship in the United States. Definitely. I want to. I wonder if you'll allow me to um, point out another definition of performance that is sure. illustrated by um, by uh, uh, the sociologist, uh, and his name is escaping me right at the, at the moment. Um, oh, uh, St. Clair Drake, the famous sociologist, St. Clair, Clair Drake. Okay. And in the um, documentary, Still a Brother, mm-hmm. uh, by William Greaves, St. Clair Drake outlines how performance really is key in distinguishing um, or understanding the black middle class from the black lower class. And when he says that there are two men, they both make the same amount of money. They both work the same kind of job and they both go home. But one man goes home and his wife takes, a you know, somewhat of a long time to answer the door. And when he gets inside, he pulls down the shade and, and beats her. And then after he's done beating her, they sit at the table and talk about their finances and planning for their children's college education. And then he says that the lower class man, however, goes into the house after his wife takes a while to answer the door. He then beats her with the shades open. Right, right. Everyone can <laughs> and, see. So everyone can see. Right. You know, and before he went home, he uh, imbibed you know, a few drinks and so forth. So class in this instance that St. Clair Drake was trying to point out was not necessarily about the difference in income nah. or the difference in work that these people were doing, but right. based upon how they behave right, right, in right. society. Mm-hmm. And so those are the kinds of, we have, I am arguing that we have codified certain behaviors mm-hmm. to uh, exemplify or represent middle class people or underclass people. And it sort of gets us in the, in the double bind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and performance helps us to, I think, uh, to tease that, to tease that apart. Sure, sure. Yeah, good. I, I wanted to talk, that was one of the terms I wanted to talk about class and, um, the way in which E. Patrick Johnson, you know, opens your text by talking about intraracial class divisions and your articulation just now about class, not necessarily in terms of economics, but certainly in terms of behavior is critical to understanding uh, one of the main distinctions, I would say, um, between middle class, middle classes, I guess, in the U.S., middle classes, if you think of uh, race as a distinction between the various kinds of middle classes in the U.S. Yes. Um, All right, so that's fine. What about bourgeois? I mean, this is, or just put them together, bourgeois and bougie, and the distinctions between them. (laughs) I mean, very important for us, for our discussion. Yes. Thank you for asking about that. Well, you know, the title is an obvious um, allusion to... E. Franklin Frazier's classic study mm-hmm. of 1955, uh, when it was published in Europe in 1957, and when it was published in the U.S., Black Bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. And so uh, from Bourgeois references that study to Bougie, which is a class that E. Franklin Frazier says that he didn't really discuss. And that class of people that he said he omitted from study are uh, people who were allowed to or who took advantage of civil rights legislation to increase their class stats. In other words, educational opportunities were now open to them. Um, affirmative action opportunities were now open to them. And so they were they could have come from a lower class background. Mm-hmm. And these opportunities allowed them to increase their status to um, a middle class, a solid middle class standing. But because they don't have the heritage, basically, 
um, of having old money, so to speak, or coming from a recognized family or having mixed race ancestry, mm-hmm. which was also important for black middle class um, uh, heritage in the E. Franklin Fraser study. Mm-hmm. These people, these people's bourgeois uh, status can be contested. Mm-hmm. And so bougie becomes a, a sort of pejorative term yeah. for those individuals. It, 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 it challenges their, um, their validity at, in the in a bourgeois society or, or as part of the black bourgeois bourgeois class. And this is important to understand because in both American society and in um, American and African-American uh, literature and discourse, there has always been a tendency on a part of some African-Americans of middle class background to distinguish and separate themselves from underclass blacks. Mm-hmm. And so that distinction between their solid bourgeois standing and anybody else's contested um, bougie standing is very important to understand. I, I reference um, the Pew, um, the Pew Research Center study of a few years ago mm-hmm. that interviewed um, hundreds of middle-class African-Americans in which they asked them, do you think that African-Americans are or uh, constitute a single race? Mm-hmm. And middle-class black people overall said, no, that there's two races in black, in black culture. And that, and the separation of those races is dependent on class. You have <laughs> middle-class blacks wow. and then you have a different race mm-hmm. and they are lower class blacks. Now, how, how class can separate somebody when race is supposed to be biological is really um, kind of, it blows my mind to, right. that people could think of it in that way. Right, right, right. But when we understand that in American society, that race has always been classed, always. Their race has never not been a class distinction. Yes. America. Mm-hmm. Then we can understand what these middle-class black people are getting at. They're appealing to the standard American ideology and discourse that says that your race is determined by your class, which your class is determined by certain uh, cultural factors that you exhibit and most of all your behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that that classic joke of Chris Rocks, mm-hmm. when he distinguishes black people and the N-word people, mm-hmm. we, we can understand um, uh, more, I guess, more palpably uh, what that distinction is really uh, trying to say. I, I, I want to give you one other example that sure. is so important. Please, please do. In, in, the, in 2004, uh, at the 50th anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education, Bill Cosby gave his famous pound cake oh, speech. Right. Mm-hmm. And Bill Cosby was making the same distinction between middle class African-Americans and underclass African-Americans. Right. Now, the problem with Bill Cosby's pound cake speech is that he seemed to suggest that because of the behavior of, of underclass or working class African-Americans, mm-hmm. that they deserve right. some of the ill treatment that right. they received from um, uh, police officers, from the educational system, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And his argument essentially was if they change their behavior, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't be, they wouldn't suffer such consequences. Mm-hmm. Now, on the surface, that seems like a valid argument. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the fact that what one of the points that Bill Cosby raised was that people were getting shot, black men were getting shot for having for stealing a piece of pound cake. Right. And he was saying, well, why are you saying that this is a bad thing that they've got a shot? You should be teaching your son not to steal the pound cake. That's true. Right. But we live in a world, the entire world where no human is perfect. People steal every day. Right. And in our judicial system has uh, codified certain consequences for certain crimes. And when you steal a piece of pound cake, you do not get the death sentence. That's right. So for Bill Cosby to argue that what's most important in that scenario is for the parent to train the, the, the child or the black male not to steal the pound cake, as opposed to saying it's un. It's unfair and really wrong mm-hmm. to shoot and execute black men because they've shot pound cakes mm-hmm. when we give other people a slap on the hand. And right. so now we see how important it is to understand this distinction that we're trying to make between black people on the basis of class and the basis of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, in addition to 
what you you just said besides um you know in your analysis of, of Bill Cosby um where he says that we ought to, to deal with the behavior itself or somehow the behavior justifies the 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 consequence the other thing that needs to be said is that you have individuals black males who are getting shot for the perception of having stolen some pound cake. But ultimately you find out that they had no pound cake on them. You know, there's yeah. no kind of address to that issue. Um, right. And certainly right. if you do address that issue, then you have to face the fact that it's about more than behavior. I mean, behavior is certainly significant in terms of the way that you're defining it, you know, to, to indicate somebody's class, but, um, it is also something that we have to think about the behavior or the lack of behavior that is perceived, and yet one still has these, you can still get shot. Yes, right, you know? exactly, yes. So that's a very important point, and I think that that's the one, that's something that uh, Mr. Cosby is, is also just just ignoring. It's, it's a yes. significant point. I think a lot of people are under fire for just perceptions, right. not even having done anything. I was actually uh, listening to, um, you know, I shouldn't reference this because I can't remember the name of, of the woman, but I was referencing, uh, um, uh, sorry, thinking about, a. excuse me one second, please. Yeah, I was, ref I'm thinking about a, um, I'm sorry about that. Somebody just came in, so I had to uh, talk to them for a second. I'm thinking about a woman who does a, uh, a series of um, interviews, a documentary with these young black people. She's in Chicago, actually. Uh, Mark Anthony Neal interviewed her a few weeks ago on Left of uh, Black. And he says that... Um, she says that she's been talking to a, a number of black youth that um, one said, you know, he's been living his life, going to school. And then he guesses one day he just woke up black because, you know, the way he, he understood it came to him how the police or just other people within the mainstream America, within American society are perceiving him at some point when he finally understood that it's different from the way that he actually sees himself, um, that that was when he woke up black. That's what that realization is when he woke up black. Um, so in any case, I, I guess I'm just kind of what your, your example is, is, is leading me to think about is the other ways that other people are starting to really articulate that little, that missing link, that missing piece that, um, you know, uh, Bill Cosby sometimes misses or seems to forget, at least when he's discussing the matters in, in um, mainstream, in mainstream media. Um, all right. So I like one thing that I, I, I do like as we're talking about definitions here. I, I love the way that you you emphasize the various ways in which these terms can be used. For instance, bougie can be seen as positive. She can also be seen, spoken of um, in negative terms. Yeah. Why was that important for you? Uh, it was important because besides the fact that some of these terms are hard to pronounce um, and there's, there's um, debate about how you even spell bougie um, and how you pronounce bourgeois, which isn't a, a, a outside of academic spheres, a, a common, commonly used phrase in the world. Um, it's, it's it's important to, to 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 talk about all the ways in which these terms bourgeois and bougie are taken up and understood variously, because one reader might say, "Hey, I've always understood bougie to be a fun loving term where you know it's it's light chiding um, of of somebody. It's not meant to be uh, overly critical." Where someone else may see bougie uh, uh, as 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 being very very critical, so. Uh, it's important to uh, understand those various definitions because they reflect the way in which performances are, are represented and understood. Good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
for that response. All right, so performance um, in the U.S. context has much to do with the history of passing. And, you know, when most people think of passing, they, they think of blacks who were able to cross over into the white world, right, due to their skin tone, along with performance, right? Uh, but the concept of passing is usually, or is useful too, when we, we talk about middle class performance, right? Yes. I think yes. your discussion or the dis distinctions you make between um, representation and pre presentation um, speak to that. Yes, that's right. I wanna I wanna say something about passing. Um, if uh, most people think about passing in a reductive or simple sense, that if a person had the hair texture, straight, blonde, so speak, um, eye color, and skin uh, phenotype, light skin, very light skin, that, that they could pass for white. Mm -hmm. um, but they very seldomly think about how that person also had to behave right. in a certain kind of way. And usually the passing black person who was passing for white couldn't behave as a lower class black person. I mean, I'm sorry, as a lower class white person, because that class would be that class performance would be a way to call out their blackness because black has always been equated with a lower class identity. Right. So the passing character and you look at the passing novels at the early turn of the 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, well up through the Harlem Renaissance, these people were performing middle class persona mm -hmm. uh, because middle class was associated with being white. The other thing to think about when we talk about passing is that black people who were dark skinned right. <laughs> found other ways of passing as non-black people. Right. In other words, they were right. uh, they, they, they were passing as someone who was not a citizen of the, of the United States right. because right. to be a citizen of the United States and black means that you're subject to Jim Crow laws. That's right. Or were, you know, mm -hmm. before 1954. But if you were a black person who was a non-U.S. citizen mm -hmm. um, or a non-black U.S. citizen, then you could... Uh, you could subvert those those Jim Crow laws yeah. and have some privileges that that white people have. One example of this yeah. is in Booker T. Washington's Up from Slavery, um, in which he tells of a Moroccan man, dark skinned man, who's speaking English, staying at a hotel, and the and the townspeople were up in arms and they wanted to to lynch him for staying apparently in this um, uh, segregated hotel. Mm -hmm. And then they brought the man out and he was like, hey, I'm Moroccan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am not a black man. I'm Moroccan. Right. And he started to use his native language and he found it advantageous. Booker T. Washington said that while he was traveling in the U.S. not to use English. Right. Um, because right. people would mistake him as African-American. And then other literary figures like Zora Neale Hurston, for instance, writes about passing as an Asiatic princess when she was working as a secretary for Fanny Hearst mm -hmm. uh, and getting into the famous Astor uh, Hotel, which was segregated, yeah. and other examples. Um, what's really also important about this, um, Sherry, to me, is that it shows a being middle class in and of itself is not enough. Yes. U.S. Yes. Um, if you're if you're an African American. That's true. Yes. Yes. Um, I remember the first time I in reading your text. I remember the first time that passing as a non-U.S. citizen black um, and the how do I want to say the um, benefits maybe the benefits that that accompanied that sort of passing was when I first read uh, Angela Davis's first, her, her autobiography. Hmm. She talks about being in Alabama. Um, am I, do I have that right? I think so. In the South, when she was just a child, she and her sister would go into the store and they wouldn't be able, they wouldn't be served. They knew that they wouldn't be served and they would get in trouble to a shoe store or hat store, one of the two. And what they did one day was they went in and pretended to be French <laughs> and were speaking French and 
they found out, she writes this in her, her text, she found that they were allowed to try on the shoes. They were allowed to try on the hats. They were treated exactly as the white Americans were treated. Yes. I mean, it, it blew my mind because yes. that was when I was introduced to this this idea of passing as uh, this is deeper. This is not just a black and white thing, but race in America, there seems to be a particular thing we're talking about within the U.S., particularly white mainstream, when we talk about black Americans, yes. native-born Americans. Um, yep. I mean, we yep. could get into that conversation. Um, it's pretty deep. Uh, yeah. But 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 I want to I want to really get into or highlight for our listeners something that I think is fabulous about your text as well, and it is the um, organization of it and uh, your decision to. Um, well, let me say when I when I think about the organization of your text, I can't help but think of African American narrative conventions of blurring fact and truth. Yeah. It enacts that very nicely um, because you have four sections, performing responsibility, performing womanhood, performing media, and performing sexuality. And within each of those sections, you have essays as well as poetry, as well as fiction, short stories, plays. I mean, just lovely, just very, very lovely. Um, can you talk about your decision and how to organize the book. Did it, is it something that happened organically or is it something intentional from the very beginning? It was very intentional. Okay, good, good. <laughs> I should have, uh, given your, your background in performance art, it made sense that it's intentional. It was extremely intentional. Um, I want to say that I am really bothered by academics who believe that that scholars, in order to be valid, have to speak or write in a very um, uh, high high academic prose. I, I think that's ridiculous. Yes. Um, I'm not against that mm -hmm. prose style. Mm -hmm. I'm against the unequivocal requirement for all scholars to produce in that manner. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it excludes the mainstream public from from important academic conversations and debates. Yeah. And one of the ways of um, challenging that um, reification is to use creative works, yes. which are often not seen as academic in nature, right. but they are quite rhetorical um, in terms of being persuasive, of getting points across. I mean, when we think about the Black arts movement and the Black power movement, mm -hmm. poetry, um, drama, um, fiction, those were the vehicles used to um, drive home important arguments about race, politics, government, et cetera. Right. And so, um, yeah, it was quite intentional for me um, to, uh, and, and my assistant editor, to uh, include those creative works mm -hmm. because um, they're important. Also, performance studies as a discipline doesn't make a distinction uh, between um uh, creative works and academic essays. In other words, those scholars do them both. They do creative works and academic essays, and one is not necessarily more privileged than the other. They're both equally privileged, and uh, we engage in the, in the both. Okay, good. Good. Now, I'm going to um, ask that you speak a little bit about performing responsibility. Um, I, I think it's important to just reiterate for our listeners that the main thread or one of the main threads within the text is um, or foundations is E. Franklin Frazier's um, 19, the book that he published in 1957 on the black middle class. And so in, in talking about responsibility, um, you know, the way in which he defines responsibility counters notions of uplift, you know, or, or upliftment, right? Um, it's about somehow maintaining as opposed to uh, assimilating with white mainstream country culture. It is about maintaining black culture, identity, and spirituality, as he says on 23, page 23. What 
explain for me some of the complexities of responsibility that um, as we think about um, responsibility in the way that Frazier outlined it and then in other ways that we've seen if we look back at, you know, um, the Talented Tenth, et cetera. Wow, that's a really tough question. Oh, is it? <laughs> Sorry. Well, let, let me let me let me um, say that the the section on the opening section and on responsibility is really important because racial uplift has always been important to Black people, and I think that we still have a tendency to um, think about racial uplift in in very reductive and now problematic terms, where we're trying to um, pave a way for lower class or poor African-Americans in order to uh, uplift the, you know, the entire race. I mean, which goes back to uh, W.B. Du Bois and and Booker T. Washington and some others, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, um, uh, Prominent figures in in racial uplift discourse. But I think that uh, responsibility um, alludes to that discussion, but it also alludes to the discussion of what is my connection as a middle-class black man yes. to the overall black community, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it also speaks to sometimes that no man's land or no woman's land that middle-class black people find themselves in, especially if you're like you or me, mm-hmm. where we move in predominantly white environments for work um, and sometimes in our social settings, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and whether or not we can be fully accepted um, in those environments or, or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, what, what is my responsibility to try to maintain a connection yeah. to uh, the black community, but also what is the black community responsibility to me? Yes. Yes. And yes. there, and there are different, different takes on this. And so the book doesn't try to, to answer that question right. at section as much as it tries to, to present an array of problems. It opens with one of the premier figures in African-American studies and African-American literary studies, Houston Baker, Mm. who talks about his shift in understanding his role and relationship to the black community. But then it ends with another premier figure, Amiri Baraka, Mm -hmm. who has been some fairly consistent in his uh, critique of black middle-class people who he thinks um, or argues uh, sort of pimp mm-hmm. lower class black people for their own um, uh, success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, thank you for saying the question initially was a difficult or a complex one, but I thought that you answered it really nicely in your, um, in your intro too, as you did here. Um, but I derived it from your, your intro where if you, if you don't mind my quoting you, um, you say that leadership is not only about occupying a political office like the presidency. It is about one's responsibility to family, to community, to the race. One carries out this responsibility in various roles. And this is the thing that I really wanted to emphasize or thought was important. One's in various roles as the one who has made it in an otherwise lower class family as a major figure in an academic field, as an administrator of a university, or as someone who runs a community institution designed to promote racial and economic success for Blacks. Um, and so that's, you know, um, what I want what I want listeners to get from one of the things that you do within this text and all of the con- uh, contributors is that you look at responsibility in a very diverse way. And so that leadership then is is defined out in outside ways than we think of them conventionally, right? Um, it opens up and, and just kind of maybe maybe it doesn't open up. Maybe it's always been this way within Black communities, but reminds us that leadership is not simply just holding a political office. That you and or I um, have responsibility and can be leaders in our various spaces. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, so the last question I, I want to ask you, um, just because I know we've taken up a lot of your time here, is I want to see if I can find a question that will merge performing womanhood, performing sexuality, and performing media. 
Um, and I think that we can do that if we think about gender. Yes. Um, and the <laughs> amount of uh, uh, pressure or weight right. Uh, right. that historically has historically been placed on uh, black women or black girls as representations or representers of the the, the race. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I do. Um, I think that when you're you're talking about black girls, um, perhaps uh, you're referring to the opening essays in the section of Performing Womanhood, um, where Nazira Wright and Claire Oberon Garcia talk Mm -hmm. about the black girl figure Mm -hmm. um, uh, as being... um, Represent, represent, representers of mm-hmm. uh, racial uplift, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really interesting. And they yes. do a much better job than I could even do here mm-hmm. um, in, in summarizing um, their arguments. And mm-hmm. but I, you see, there is no section on black manhood. Yes, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. And that is very, very, very particular mm-hmm. because this book is designed to sort of think about. Um, uh, Topics that we that we haven't really considered in response in response to blackness mm-hmm. and womanhood is one of those areas that black feminists have said we need to pay very close attention to, mm-hmm. and I think still in this at this late date in the feminist or womanist I should say for black people movement and movements that we we still are not as conversant on issues dealing with with women as we should be. And so it was very important to uh, have that section. Gender and sexuality though affects black people overall. Uh, And what this book is trying to do too, is to show how no cultural dimension, no specific aspect of identity is separate Mm -hmm. from the other. Mm -hmm. We cannot separate race from class. We cannot separate race from class from gender. And we cannot separate race from class from gender from sexuality. It just doesn't happen. And so it ends with this section on sexuality and gender because those are co- intricately connected to our understanding of, of racial performance. Mm-hmm. I do want you raised the question about the artwork early enough. So I want to talk a little bit about it. Yes. The cover art and the inserts for every section. Uh, there's a, a character representation for each section is done by my good friend, Jean Berry, who's an artist from Iowa. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked the press if if we could use the uh, some artwork from Jean Berry for the cover, and they saw it and fell in love with it. Yes. Uh, and if you look at it, some people have have commented that it doesn't directly um, uh, amplify the title of the book, mm-hmm. but there's four sort of ambiguously gendered characters mm-hmm. uh, on the on the cover. They're kind of masculinized in a certain way, but they're they're feminized too. Um, and they're, they're sort of like incarnations and movements within African-American class struggle and class identity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why th- th- there's four here yeah. on the cover. And they're, it's sort of like saying we're not stuck in mm-hmm. slavery. We're not stuck in Reconstruction. We're not stuck in the Harlem Renaissance. We're not mm-hmm. stuck in Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. But all of those, all of our history uh, informs our present, mm-hmm. and so that's that's what that's what that representation is. Yeah, I mean, and then of course when you talk on who, not you, but um, hmm, I'm missing it here um, on Annie Lee's um, art. Deborah Whaley. Right. Okay. Thank you. I was just about to pull out her name. Yes, the uh, essay when, when she speaks about Annie Lee, um, the characteristic when I when she's speaking about Annie Lee, I look back at all of the art within the text as well because one of the links was the faceless figures, and I just love that that allows almost like an almost I know that it's not an installation, but it. It is kind of where you can insert yourself and become a part of read yourself or people you know into these images that we're seeing here. Fabulous. I, I, I mean, I think that the, the text definitely, um, we haven't even scratched the surface in our conversation. Um, and I'm not sure that we would be able to get through all of the, the, the richness um, of the text here. Um, so I highly encourage everyone out there to uh, take a look at this text. 
um, because it, it's it's important. It's important. Thank you. Um, and you do a, a wonderful job, everyone inside the text, all the contributors do as well. Um, especially men. I wish we could talk more about the uh, blues women in the black church. No, I know. Oh, Greg Tate's essay on Afro punks. Yes. Um, man. All right. So <laughs> um, I want to ask you before we close, um, you know, what are you doing now? We want to hear more from you, Rashad. <laughs> what are you doing now? And you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a workaholic. Um, so I'm working on several things right now. Mm-hmm. I'm working on an anthology of African-American rhetoric um, that um, pulls together primary works from um, colonization uh, to um, present day. So things like um, Nikki Finney's um, uh, National Book Award acceptance speech, August Wilson's speech, The Ground on Which We Stand. Mm-hmm. These are primary texts, mm-hmm. primary rhetorical texts within the African-American tradition. We have a lot of anthologies in African-American literature. Uh, and we have the famous ones, the Norton Anthology and the Riverside. Yes. Um, but we don't have any any compendium on African-American rhetoric. Yes. Um, and so I am um, doing that with two uh, co-editors, um, Michelle Bachelor-Robinson and Carmen Kennard. I'm also working on a monograph um, called Straight Black Queers, Gender Anxiety, and the American Dream um, that I'm looking at Barack, Michelle Obama, August Wilson, and the journalist Leonita McClain Mm -hmm. for how being a middle class person who has made it um, really means that those persons experience gender anxiety in America, Mm -hmm. just how much race impacts our uh, black people's perception of who they are as men and women and what it means to be a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I call the book Straight Black Queers, because yes. it's not a focus on queer sexuality as much as it is on the gender identity being queer when it comes to the idealized version of womanhood or manhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we are looking forward to the work that you are, your upcoming work. Um, and if you know, if um, from bourgeois to bougie, black middle class performances is any indication, we know it's going to be a nice, complex, um, titillating mixture of, um, you know, uh, art, fine art, as well as, uh, you know, critical works. And so we're looking forward to the work that you are coming up with. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank Sean. you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you, and we wish you all the very best. Thank you. All right. Goodbye. You're listening to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies. Today, I've been talking with Professor Vershawn Ashanti Young, and he's been discussing his new book, From Bourgeois to Bougie, Black Middle Class Performances. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and I look forward to seeing you next time.